Hello, and welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Jacob Feldman. Thanks for joining me again today. This week, our guest is Gideon Lewis Krauss. Gideon is high on the leaderboard for Sunday Long Read appearances, including three in the last 12 months. One for a profile of a private jet broker, one an inside look at the crypto world's biggest scandal, and most recently, he's written an investigation for the New York Times Magazine into the, quote, genome revolution in the study of the human past and how it might be leading us astray. Gideon's a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine and a contributing editor at Wired Magazine. He's also the author of a travel memoir called A Sense of Direction, as well as a teacher of nonfiction in Columbia University's graduate writing program. Gideon, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Jacob. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure, and I'm excited to dive in. We're going to start, if it's all right with you, with that most recent story. It's in the New York Times Magazine, and, and the headline was, Is Ancient DNA Research Revealing New Truths or Falling into Old Traps? Uh, maybe be uh, best for, for, for everybody, if you don't mind, kind of going into how you see what the story is. Uh, this is one of those stories where my my whole sense for what it was just kept changing as I went along. And, you know, this, this felt like one of those stories where you're just like endlessly peeling one infinite onion. What, what first interested me was that last spring there was a lot of attention when a Harvard geneticist named David Reich published a book called Who We Are and How We Got Here. And he followed it up with a somewhat controversial uh, op-ed in the Times about genetics and race science. And the book got a, a lot of attention, a huge amount of positive attention, saying this shows us that in just the last really eight years, but especially the last three or four years, the ability to extract and sequence ancient DNA from old specimens has changed all of our ideas about what we thought was going on during the tens of thousands of opaque years of human prehistory. So archaeologists, based on you know, their reading of the artifactual record, had certain ideas about uh, what had gone on you know, anywhere from a couple hundred thousand to a couple thousand years ago. And all of a sudden, these geneticists were able to grind up two or three bone samples and say, you guys are all wrong about what was happening. Um, and I thought that this was totally fascinating. I mean, I thought that the research was fascinating, but also uh, right away I thought, oh, there's an interesting disciplinary story here, which is that these archaeologists and these anthropologists have been, you know, doing their own work and having their own arguments for decades or, or centuries. And then all of a sudden these hard scientists come in and say, don't worry about your artifactual evidence. We have molecular evidence that trumps everything you've been saying. And so I, I, I'm always drawn to those kinds of disciplinary conflicts. And I thought that this was a particularly rich one because it's not an example where the archaeologists are just Luddites who hate new technology. In fact, archaeology has a long track record of adopting new technologies. It's much more that the archaeologists felt like they were their own uh, interests and priorities and values were being marginalized by lab scientists who just didn't necessarily care all that much about the historical context. So, th so that, that's the, the basic background to it, although th then it gets somewhat more complicated. Absolutely, as the best stories do. And, and that is a great jumping off point. I think, you know, it's this, it's this story about ancient history and, and, and modern times kind of wrapped together. Um, I'm curious about the story's origins. What, what, how do you dive into a story like this? Where do you start? Well, after I read Reich's book, uh, I wrote to Reich in July and I said, you know, I found so much of interest in your book, which I genuinely had. 
And I'm really curious about what this looks like from the archaeological side. Now, I went into this somewhat innocently, where I just thought, like, oh, I bet the archaeologists have kind of interesting things to say about what it's been like to incorporate all this genetic data. What I didn't realize was that this was already a really big conflict in the field. And it had been written about in uh, specialized, you know, scientific reporting. So, I mean, and I just wrote out of curiosity, I said, you know, do you have a postdoc in your lab who's trained in archaeology who, you know, might want to talk to me? And I didn't hear anything for two months. And in the meantime, I, I started reading more about this and talking to archaeologists and talking to geneticists. And they said, you know, there's a really big, interesting story here. And the story is not only about what are the conflicting attitudes between archaeologists and geneticists, but also about struggles over power and access and data and funding that go on within the genetics community. So actually, a, a number of the first people that I talked to were geneticists. I, it wasn't, I probably talked to half a dozen people until I started talking to archaeologists. And at a certain point, I thought, like, this is, there, there's a lot here. It's a really good story. And it also dovetails with contemporary concerns about um, race and the revival of racism under the banner of human, so-called human biodiversity and, and the legacy of colonialism. And so I, at a certain point, this is probably the end of July, beginning of August, I thought, well, what I need here is a narrative uh, case study to be a scaffolding for all of these ideas that I'm interested in. And so what I wanted was a place where there had been some kind of argument between or among archaeologists and anthropologists about some key episode in human population prehistory where the geneticists had come in and said, you know, we solved your, all your problems. And there were a, a number of different possibilities. Um, and probably the most obvious one would have been a couple of papers that came out in 2015 about the ancestry of, of contemporary Europeans and of Indo-European languages. But I thought, well, in this case, first of all, you have to get into all of this stuff about the way that ethno-nationalists in Europe have received this new information. I, I kind of wanted to avoid that. And also, it, there was no real impact on descendant indigenous communities. And I thought, I want to do something where this is really affecting the way that indigenous communities are being told, retold their origin stories in, in, in new ways. So I had come across, there were a series of papers that came out about remote Oceania. So remote Oceania is a, a part of the Pacific that is separated from, from it's, it's very hard to describe this briefly, but basically is, is the first place where you have to cross a water channel where you can't see to the other side. So it's, it's the beginning of the, the far side of the remote ocean. And there were a series of papers that came out about basically who these people were that 3,000 years ago had first crossed, like sailed off into the unknown. And I thought, oh, well, that makes a good story. I didn't know that much about, um, about Pacific history. And what was interesting is that there was this one kind of bombshell paper in 2016 that, from Reich's lab. And then in 2018, there were these two follow-ups from two different labs. And I thought, well, and then these follow-ups came out practically at the same time, but they had different results. And I thought, oh, maybe there's an interesting competition or collaboration story here. So I got in touch with a, a number of people in Vanuatu, and then I got the Times Magazine to say, yeah, you know, it's not often we get stories from Vanuatu. That sounds like a, a great idea. And then, like, literally, like, a week, I, I think, after I'd booked my trip to Vanuatu, like, days before I was leaving, I got an email back from Reich saying, oh, I'm sorry, I missed your email two months ago, and uh, <laughs> happy to talk whenever. And I said, oh, well, I'm, go I'm going to Vanuatu, and we'll talk when I get back. So I went to Vanuatu, and, like... 
you know, had this like the the kind of time where you the kind of reporting experience where you basically show up in a in a far funk place with like two contacts and then yeah. quickly you realize that everybody you want to talk to knows each other and they not only know each other but they hang out every day at the Kava bar in the afternoon. So like within 24 hours I'd met virtually everybody that that I could talk to there, both yeah. both Vanuatu locals and foreign researchers. Um and then so that's how that had all initially come together. And then when I came back from Vanuatu, then I did the bulk of the follow-up reporting about a lot of the archaeological history and the, the way that the genetic science works. And so all in all, it was six or seven month project. Yeah, that, I think that's impressive to, to cover such a wide uh, geographic area, such, such a wide uh, academic area in, in uh, half a year. I, I'm curious, specifically kind of diving into the story a little bit, uh, the description of Reich, Dr. Reich, is that how you pronounce it? Is that right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know kind of what, what went into this, but it, it read differently to me the second time I read the story than the first time. So you describe him wearing uh, a close-fitting pullover and fading coral chinos, though his hairline has receded and the curls behind his ears are graying. A boyish precocity makes him seem much younger than his 44 years. He led me swiftly past the confab of postdocs and into his windowed office. There was very little in the way of adornment, save a ghostly truncated branch of the Indo-European languages tree, including Greek and Armenian, that someone had sketched out on the wall over his desk with what looked like a permanent marker. And this is, uh, what, 20% of the story, maybe less? Uh, I'm curious kind of what, what you, how you thought about the best way to describe it, why you thought, you know, those, those details were important. I mean, that's a really good question. And I guess it goes to sort of how I think about a lot of those details in general. One of the ways that I think about things like details in a, in a description of a person is that they give you a chance to to catch some of the like unaccountable like spillover and remainder which is to say that like in describing somebody there's always a certain kind of programmatic inclination to it so you know i wanted to make it clear in the story that this was somebody who had been celebrated from a very young age for his precocity and that there was still this aspect of of a scientist where even though you know, he has a, his own lab at Harvard Medical School. There was a kind of eagerness to be, to be praised and to be celebrated um, as, as precocious. And this comes up later in the story when it seems like, you know, that there was, that a lot of this work is, is sort of rushed and it involves a, a, a lot of competition that seems somewhat un, unusual for the sciences or perhaps not totally unusual, but not the way that I think most people think about how scientific progress proceeds. So, you know, there was that aspect of what I wanted to emphasize up front. But then the other things are, you know, you want to gesture at the fact that, like, of course you can never capture an, an, a whole character in, you know, one paragraph or an entire piece. And that, to me, the details are always, like, pointing beyond themselves. Like, the, the, what, one of the things that they're doing is that they're always saying there is a lot we want to just gesture at the possible like breadth and richness and reticulation of of this persona and that not all details are supposed to fit i think that that one of the things that turns me off about certain kinds of writing is when it seems like every detail has been chosen to be perfectly aligned with uh like a a certain kind of narrative frame for something and i always think one of the roles of a detail is just to remind everyone that there's a lot more going on that you know, one like not only, you know, can account for in a magazine story, but more broadly remains unknowable. And so one of the one of 
my ideas about details is that they're always kind of gesturing toward the things that you don't know, but the richness of the of the context that you hope is is going to continue to reverberate in the piece. Really interested by how how you frame it. it. It's it feels like I'm kind of coming on this journey with you, and the nut graph or or, or the essential piece of the story that I identified comes um, by my account five thousand eight hundred and eighty nine words in. The more meaningful division is between two alternate intellectual attitudes, those bewitched by grand historical narratives who believe that there is something both detailed and definitive to say about the very largest questions, and those who warily warn that such adventures rarely end well. I think a lot of times that sentence would be 100 words in or 500 words in, but instead it's 5,000 words in. So why do you feel like the story needed to, to not, not to say bury what, what you're trying to say, but lead people to what you're trying to say that, that deep into what is a 12,000 uh, word magazine story? I mean, that's another great question. That, that kind of gets to the, the heart of everything that we, that we struggled with editorially with the story for months. And, you know, really, I owe a, a, so much gratitude here to my editor, Bill Wasik, who is just a, I mean, he's a genius in general, but he's especially a, a structural genius. And, my inclination actually was not really to do that. My inclination was to start the whole thing by saying there is this conflict <laughs> and about this material and about the, these different attitudes. And, you know, in fact, my early drafts definitely did that. They, they foregrounded that much more. And, you know, Bill said at a certain point, like, you have to take a step back and realize that there is so much complexity in this piece, both in terms of, like, you know, introducing people to to what Vanuatu, where Vanuatu is and what it looks like and what the relevant history there is of, of imperial and colonial uh, adventures and then what is the background for kind of like hard scientific incursions into anthropology and archaeology and you know that he said he said I think we need to effectively think about this as almost two pieces that there's the first half which is basically like a 6,000 word piece about genetics having overturned all these ideas about the ancient world and then the second half which is the well actually maybe not so fast and in a sense we probably could have like waited a year for somebody else to do like the hype piece for somebody else to do the like ancient dna is changing everything piece and then kind of everybody would have or magazine readers would have had this idea that like okay ancient dna is changing everything and then we could have come along and done basically just the second half of this piece which would have been like well is it really or is there more to to this than that. Instead, we kind of had to do both things at the same time. And so what he said was, we have to first explain all of this stuff, and then we can complicate it. You can't, you can't introduce something and complicate it in the same breath. It's, it's too much for a reader to process. And so, but then my concern, actually, actually his concern also, is that what we didn't want to do what he uh, describes as hiding the ball, which is that we didn't want it to feel like we know all of this stuff that we are keeping from the reader and then only like revealing in this dramatic way in the second half. We didn't want it to feel manipulative that way. And th that, that's kind of hard to do. So essentially we decided that like the solution to this was to look at it perspectively, which is to say that ultimately the way we thought about it was the first half of this piece is basically written from the perspective of a well-intentioned but somewhat naive geneticist, which is that this is how the geneticist sees all of this. This is how a geneticist sees the history of archaeology. This is how the geneticist sees the, you know, his or her own contribution to what's going on. And 
that like we're going to stick within that mindset not a geneticist who like thinks archaeologists are stupid or like thinks that their concerns are trivial but a geneticist who just you know like a like a genetics PhD student who is like just learning about how exciting all this stuff is and like kind of like just isn't hasn't become aware of the broader conflicts and that then the second half is essentially narrated from the perspective of not exactly an archaeologist because you know as the piece explains there are like plenty of problems with how complicit a lot of archaeologists are in this system but the second half is then like from the perspective of somebody who is understand who can uh, understand from outside the the conflicts that are that are taking place between these two disciplines so that was kind of the way that we got around the problem of like are we hiding the ball or not was essentially to think like we have basically two different narrators for this piece right and and, and you do even split it up as part one and part two at least online i assume in, in the magazine too yeah yeah in, mag- in the magazine too uh, I'm, I'm glad you used the word complexity because that that to me i don't know about you but uh, I feel like I'm now in like this near constant dialogue with my friends and colleagues about like complexity and social media and stories and, you know, context. And uh, so, so you know, viewing it w- with that frame, this story to me is, is so much about complexity. I'm curious, it seems like a difficult endeavor to try to simply make the case that simplification is dangerous, is that, if that question makes sense. Like, you know, you're trying to make this complex idea of complication simple while also suggesting the dangers and simplifying generally. Is that, is that something you feel like you face often in your work? I'm curious how you feel like you think about complexity and nuance when you're trying to craft a story, whether it's this one or in general. Well, I mean, I guess to me, like the idea is there's no such thing as complexity and and nuance for its own sake, that there's always like, well, you know, what is what is the point of the story you're trying to tell? And then what how much of the complexity is necessary to tell that particular story. So, you know, there were people on, on Twitter who said things like, you know, he collapsed all the whole history of archaeology into four sentences. And of course, that's not totally accurate. And like, yeah, I know that you can't do the whole history of archaeology in one paragraph. But my thought was like, OK, what is it important to know about the history of archaeology for the purposes of this story? And that should always be like the operating principle, which is like how much complexity is needed for the story. Now, we, uh, in a sense, I had like really handicapped myself in, with the decision to do this about the this particular Vanuatu story because we because it's so complicated even to explain like the background to all this which is you have these Austronesian people or or these people who are associated with the spread of Austronesian languages who come down from Taiwan and through the Philippines and they bring this like you know what what one scientist calls like a, a tracer die in the form of their genetic legacy and then you have these other people that are like broadly called papuans although this whole idea of papuan is like totally meaningless because there were groups in the remote highlands of papua new guinea who were probably 30,000 years of um separated from the people 200 miles down away from them on the coast so like this whole concept that like there's such thing as like a papuan is kind of meaningless also and so it, it certainly would have been a lot easier just to say like, well, okay, there was this issue, like which group was it? It was either these Asian groups or, or, or these like more local Papuan groups who had settled this place. But we had, it, this became kind of a trap for ourselves because since we were saying the geneticists ignore the like rich complexity, uh, like both the genetic complexity of the region and the historical complexity of the region, we could not also be guilty of that. So we had to we had to think like, okay, how are we gonna 
make sure that like we are also covering all of this complexity in a way that differentiates what, what we're doing from what the geneticists do. Because there was a, at one point where somebody I showed it to said like, oh, you know, like you just don't need all of this specific history. It just weighs you down. And I was like, I agree that it like it's it can be slow going, but also I would be such a hypocrite if we don't get into this since we're accusing other people of not getting into it. Yeah. Do, do you feel like there's always, you know, a, a case to be made that you, you've oversimplified, you know, like at, at some, is that just like something you have to accept that, that there's always a possibility for more context in, in a situation and you still feel like you can rule on something without, you know, contextualizing yourself to the point of parity? Well, I mean, hopefully you never feel like you oversimplified. And also like, I, I guess, again, I just don't think of like, I'm not sure that simplification in the abstract is all that useful of a uh, analytic tool here. I think the idea is, have I told a version of this story that is coherent and accurate and meaningful? And, you know, of course you could always go on at infinitely greater length about anything. The question is, like, is that necessary in this context? And have I provided enough of this background to, for at least like this story that I'm telling to hold together? Mm -hmm. No. So, you know, there were like people on the comments on the New York Times page that were like, I really want it. Like, I don't understand why he doesn't tell us more about the like, like the statistical way methods that are used to, to do this stuff. And he doesn't talk about SNP capture versus whole, whole genome sequencing, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, the, like, that's the point. Like, I find that stuff really interesting. I read tons of papers about that stuff. Like, I, I happily would have written a few thousand words about it. But at that point, you have to say like, people are just, most readers are just not going to find this interesting. And all they need to know for this story is this is a fundamentally statistical method that is somewhat arcane and be relatively recently developed and is like a fundamentally an inferential device. It's not revealing anything. It is just making inferences based on these correlations. And like, that's all anybody needs to know for the purposes of this story. But of course, that's always a judgment call. It's like, what does somebody need to know for the purposes of a given story? Mm -hmm. No, I, I think that's perfect. And we, we've mentioned comments and, and Twitter a couple times. So I do want to talk about the, the reaction to this piece. And I'll start with the letter that, that Reich posted uh, on his Harvard uh, EDU page, I think. And I've just kind of pulled out the last paragraph here. Lewis Krauss's critiques are based on incomplete facts and largely anonymous sources whose motivations are impossible to assess. Curiously, he did not ask me about the great majority of his concerns. Had he done so, the evidence underlying his thesis that my work is, quote, indistinguishable from the racialized notions of the swashbuckling imperial era, end quote, would have fallen apart. The truth and the main theme of my 2018 book with a link to his book, Who We Are and How We Got Here, Ancient DNA and the New Science of the Human Past, is exactly the opposite. Namely, that ancient DNA findings have rendered racist and colonialist narratives untenable by showing that no human population is, quote, pure or unmixed. It is incumbent on scientists to avoid advocating for simplistic theories and instead to pay attention to all available facts and come to nuanced conclusions. The same holds true for journalists reporting on science. You can you can take that specifically or, or just generally. I'm curious what you've thought of, you know, this is not the first time you've written about academia and I'm sure you're kind of used to the way these things kind of spiral on, on, on blogs and, and, and conferences, etc. But how, how did you expect this piece to land and, and how has it landed uh, among the people you've kind of been tracking. Well, I mean, what, what, do you want me to talk about that broadly or do you want me to respond to the... Uh, respond the, specifically and then we can go broad. 
I mean, there, there's a lot to say in, res in response to that paragraph. I mean, there's, it's, it's just wholly untrue. I mean, first of all, I never say that all of his work is recapitulating these racialized notions of the 18th century. I say that this particular Vanuatu study is, and I'm not saying he did that on purpose. I'm saying that he just didn't know. And, you know, I talked to people, archaeologists who are collaborators of his, who proudly said, this all is exactly what Reinhold Forster, who was Captain Cook's naturalist on his 1774 voyage to the Pacific, this is exactly the same thing he did. Like, as he said, isn't this crazy that, you know, now we're 200 years later and we're like genetics is telling us the same thing. So there are plenty of people who are saying this. And, you know, I'm not saying this about all of his work. I'm like that that was taken out of context. This is just about this work. I mean, the second thing that I'll say is that it's also absolutely not true that he never had a chance to respond to this stuff. He and I had a, a long phone conversation when we started at the very beginning of January, January 2nd, in which I said, this is what I learned from the anonymous reviews. How do you respond? And that's all in the piece. So the piece itself contradicts that. I mean, in the piece, we have him saying these reviewers were bad reviewers and I prevailed because they were bad reviewers. So, I mean, it, it, it's in the piece that he was able to respond to this stuff. And also, you know, as he says, like he was given all like a hundred points of fact checking or whatever. So, I mean, he was aware of every single thing that was in this piece before publication and had plenty of time to respond to everything. Now, did I tell him when I first met with him, like, gee, there are like things that I'm skeptical of? First of all, I didn't know as much then. And second of all, no, like nothing ever says that you have to come in and say, I'm asking you these questions because I believe X, Y, and Z. Like that's not, nothing in reporting says you have to tell someone what you're, everything that you've come to believe to the point that you're talking to them. You just ask people questions and you try to figure out what they think about things. So sure, there was a lot of stuff that we told him about during the closing process. But you know what? That's how it goes. You know, that partially because the piece is in so much flux before then, you have to wait until you're going to see what's actually in it. But then also, this is somebody who has a reputation for being an insistent person. And, you know, in these cases, you worry that, like, there's going to be things like source tampering. And so it is perfectly standard practice that toward the end of the process, you, you know, you give somebody, in this case, he had six days to respond to, to everything that was in the piece. And you know what? That's his standard practice too. You know, I've seen emails in which he gives reviewers, he gives co-authors on a paper 48 hours to respond to a paper before he submits it. So he had six days and he usually gives people two days. Uh, I mean, from many emails that I've seen. And, you know, so it's just not true that he didn't have, that he didn't know what was in it and didn't have a chance to respond. He had plenty of chances to respond. And the other thing that I will say about the anonymous sources is that, Yes, there are a lot of anonymous sources in this piece because pe because people are afraid of professional retribution. And you know what? The other thing is, almost all of the people, or if, in fact, I think all of the people I've seen defend him on Twitter are white male tenured scientists. And a lot of the people that I talked to were women and people of color who felt very uncomfortable being attached to these things because they're the most vulnerable. And you know what? Like one of the reasons you allow people anonymity is because you want to let uh, let vulnerable people come forward and have a voice that they might not otherwise have. Now, the other thing that I'll say is that I actually think that if Reichsall might, you know, I, I talked to, I counted a, about 60 people for this story. And actually probably 
including the trip to Vanuatu, probably more, probably more like 80. And I think Professor Reich would be very, very surprised to see that list of names because I think he has some idea that these are like his rivals and his competitors. And frankly, like I did talk to some of his rivals, but I didn't use anything that they told me because I don't think it's fair to quote somebody's rivals anonymously. I mean, I talked to them for like, just to say that I talked to them, but none of these quotes come from his rivals. And in fact, a lot of these quotes come from people that I suspect he would consider his friends. And they wanted to be anonymous in part because they feared professional retribution. And I think in part because they wanted to, because they were afraid to say these things to his face. And I think he'd be, he has this idea that these are like, you know, uh, people lurking in the shadows, but like these are people that you know have been on invitation lists to small invite only things that he has given. I mean, like I, I talked to a lot of people that I think he would consider very close collaborators who supported everything that I said. So, you know, I I, I understand that of course he feels defensive and of course he feels upset because he doesn't want all these things in public, and who knows to what extent he even recognizes this this, this stuff. You know, it's possible that that in his own mind. Like everybody loves the work that he does, but you can't just say like, these are scurrilous rumors from bad actors. Like it's just not true. And you know, the other thing that I'll point out that a lot of journalists don't understand, that a lot of non-journalists don't understand is that a, a, an anonymous source is just a confidential source. I mean, that doesn't mean that I'm the only person who knows who these people are. I mean, we had two fact checkers on this piece and the head of the research department and my editor. So everyone who was quoted on background is known, their identity and their credentials are known to five people. And the fact checkers talk to all of these people. The, I mean, the, I, like the one of the fact checkers, the one who had to do kind of the most like disciplinary uh, conflict stuff, I think she talked to 40 people for this. Excellent. Uh, no, that, 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 that's great uh, context to add. More broadly, how, how has this piece landed in the debate that you kind of stumbled upon to start with? What I can tell from the outside, it's kind of more or less what I expected, which is that like, if you have a, you know, like some problem in your field, it is very useful to have an outsider come along and point out that problem so that then the problem is on the table and can be discussed and addressed and everybody can then like ritually stone the outsider because, you know, in an act of group catharsis, because then nobody within is responsible for what happened and everybody can disavow this interloper and also enjoy like the fruits of that interloping. So, you know, it, it's been amazing to me to watch people who are, who I spent hours on the phone with talking about all this stuff and confirming all this stuff, who then on Twitter have either been kind of like studiedly neutral or have, um, you know, meekly retweeted something in support of Reich, where I think like, you, like this is blatantly untrue. Like, I know what you think. We spent a lot of time talking about this stuff, but I also get it. Like, these are people who have to deal in this world in perpetuity. They have to deal with the reality of, of, of figuring out grants and figuring out funding and protecting their students and all of these concerns about institutional politics. But I also know that they're being pretty disingenuous in public. I mean, you know, I'm not judging them. I might very well do the same thing, but you know, that's how this stuff often plays out. Um, you went to Stanford. How has your, I'm curious how you personally have your your perspective, because you've written about, I mean, you, you, wrote, you wrote about Google and AI two or three years ago. Uh, it, it seems like this is kind of, you know, a, a topic you, you've kind of been around. So I'm curious how your perspective on on geeks, <laughs> on, 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 on powerful nerds has changed and 
um, and how the way you see us writing about these people has changed as well? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Like, I grew up in New Jersey, and the I knew next to nothing about Stanford, except that it was in it was very far away. And part of the reason that I went there was that I just wanted to go as far away from New, you know suburban New Jersey as I could. But you know, I I was at Stanford in a very like particularly interesting time because I was there. I started in the fall of 1998, like you know, right before like the height of the Nasdaq, and then sophomore year in college, everything crashed. And so, like my first two years, like my freshman roommate, who was a, a wonderful guy, like got like some ridiculous summer internship that paid him like twenty five thousand dollars for the summer or something crazy, twenty five thousand dollars a month. I don't know what it was. It was crazy. And that, but then, then by the time that I graduated, I graduated back into kind of like shabby crash San Francisco, which was a great time to be there. And so. Of of course, I I mean on on some level, like one of the things that one of the first things that happened to me in college was that like I just found the other kind of like East Coast like disaffected people to hang out with. But then again, I had like tons and tons of friends who were like really hardcore engineering and, and computer science and quantitative people. And I think that like one of the things that did for me was that it 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 oriented. I think like there's like sort of two possible like fun you know initial orientations one can have towards some of these things which is that like they're being like they meaning the kind of like mark zuckerberg type is like being really like disingenuous and, and is actually like malfeasant or that they're like pretty naive um and that like their interests are really narrowly circumscribed and like i think one of the things that for me about like going to a place like Stanford is that it was so clear that like there was no ill intent with a lot of this like technological solutionism stuff or like what was kind of like there in a nascent form 20 years ago but that this was like mostly just kind of about exposure and that like most of the people that I knew who had that kind of inclination like when they were exposed to ways of thinking that hadn't you know naturally occurred to them like always found that stuff really interesting and that it like it wasn't there was no disingenuous there there was just like a if anything a kind of like naivete about it so I think that like one of the things that I bring to a lot of these stories is a sort of faith in human sincerity like uh, on a kind of technological level now that does not necessarily extend to executives i should say and especially not executives now like or, or management in general so like when i did that google story one of the things that i wanted to the idea about that from that google story was that this is from the perspective of a like working mid-level engineer that, that this is this is about how like certain kinds of like a, a, a certain history of ideas gets translated into the form of a product and this was not about how like the execs talk about it or how the execs are selling it this was not a, like even really about like business models this was really just about a story about like how an idea becomes a product through engineering collaboration and i find that like with so much of my experience out there that like the rank and file of these technology companies is no different than the rank and file of like any kind of like quote unquote creative in new york like they have like the same kind of like vaguely like liberal left liberal or like centrist liberal politics i mean like it's it, like I mean, again, this is like setting aside how the how management behaves, but like at least from the labor perspective, it's it's really not that different. And so I think in general, I have a, a, a sympathy for like that way of looking at the world because I, I see it as genuine, if naive, rather than like actively evil. I had a question about 
the, the, the type of story, the length of story, really, that, that you write. I think all three of these are between nine and, and 12,000 words. Maybe the most recent one is closer to 13,000. I'm not sure exactly. But do you, do you feel like more people should be writing in that, that 10,000 word space? Is that, is that something kind of about the length of time for you to kind of get into something new and feel like you have a grasp enough to, 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 to cover something that broad with, with the human story? Is, is there something about that, that length, that form that, that you find intriguing or, or compelling? I do. I really like the like 10 to 15,000 word length. I mean, well, okay. To be perfectly honest, what I really like is like 25,000 words. I <laughs> right. think like, like all the things that sort of made me want to be a writer are the like 100 pages of John Malcolm or whatever. Like to me, that's kind of like, like the novella length is perfect for this stuff. Given like how generally like impractical that is these days, I really like 10 to 15,000 words because like that's, you're basically asking for like an hour of someone's time. You know, you're asking for the average to work and home from work subway commute. There's something like very nice about like that amount of time that like you're going to, you're going to say to somebody like, give me an hour of your, of your commute or whatever, like before you go to bed. And in that hour, like I'll take you on this intellectual or repertorial journey. And also I think that, I think 10 to 15,000 words is like about what you need for, to like really get sufficiently into the depth and complexity that I like to do. I mean, that's not to say that everything I do is that long. Like the, the piece right before the Jets piece was about, um, uh, it was a political piece about like democratic organizing in Virginia for a, a 2017 election. And it, I mean, that was like a quick 6,000 words because like there wasn't, there, like there, like there, it didn't need all that background. It was like pretty much straight narrative. And people know the background, right? You don't need to explain what Democrats are. Yeah, right? ex ex yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So, and, and you used the word journey there, and I think that is a good description for, for these pieces. I'm curious, you know, when you're dropping into these places for, for six months, and, and you talked about this a little bit previously, but the experience of at the end running it by the people that live this and saying, you know, here's what I found interesting about your life or, or, or the central questions to your work, or, or here's what I found notable, or here's what, what's that going? What is that experience like for you when you're kind of going back to people and saying, Here, here's what I think the story is? I rarely say, here's what I think the story is. I mean, I think what I mostly say is, here are things that have come up and like, here, like, like, let me try a hypothesis out on you. Like, what do you think of this? And then, you know, you gauge what their reaction is. And it, like, that's part of the like, you know, iterative process of reporting that like, the more stuff you learn, the more you can go back to the same people and be like, well, I like learned this and it made me think that like, what do you like, I tend to think that like my, I, I think of reporting as often in like, two stages, which is like the first 70% of reporting is just being quiet and asking questions. And then like the last 30% of the reporting is like becomes like a much more kind of even or even keel or like, you know, mutual com conversation, right? Like the last 30% is like, let's now like I'm gonna start talking and like, let's talk about everything I learned in the last 70% and like, let's see what you think about these I ideas. Uh, obviously like you learn a lot when someone's like, no, that's absolutely wrong. And it's comforting when somebody says, no, that's absolutely right. Like what you usually get is kind of like, well, you know, like on the one hand this and on the other hand that. And then you have to say to them like, okay, like cons let's let's just talk about like constraining the possible like world of of answers here. Like let's like reduce the dimensionality here a little bit and talk about like in like a a, a lim more limited sense like is this 
would you say that this is wrong? W would you say that this is like too simple? Like exactly how would you criticize this? And then that's when you really start to like learn in a granular way. And, and do you enjoy, you know, that part of the process that that back 15, 30%? Yeah, I mean, to me, like, that's kind of the most interesting part, because mm -hmm. typically at that point, like, especially if I've been working on something for like six or eight months, like, you've, you've really gotten to know these people. And like, a lot of the sources are people that like, you've gravitated to because like, you think that they have really interesting and uh, insights about their own professional world. And then at that point, like you've developed a report and you're going back and it doesn't actually just feel like you're calling up and being like, hey, you know, this is a reporter from the Times Magazine. It's like, oh, hi, like person that I've now known for six months and talked to a lot. Like, what do you think of these new ideas? And like, those just feel like natural conversations. They don't feel, they don't have like the awkwardness of interviews. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. It's something, you know, I think when I entered magazine writing, I, I didn't really kind of have a sense of that that last part and, and, and the back and forth nature of, 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 of putting this story together. The other thing I'm curious about is how you think about inserting, and you've talked, you mentioned perspective a few times, how do you think about inserting your own viewpoint, your own, uh, you could use the word opinion or perspective uh, uh, when you're crafting a narrative? It's hard to know because there's like, like, what is your own viewpoint? What is your own perspective? And like the whole point of reporting is that that's supposed to change over time. Like if that doesn't change, you probably did something wrong or the piece wasn't reporting in the first place if it's just confirming what you suspect you're going into it. So, so to me, like what's, what's more interesting is trying to remember how, what you thought about something before you started reporting. Because, you know, like the whole idea, like there was this like great line in this long James Meek piece about Alan Russ Bridger's book and the LRB, like, I don't know, a month ago, where he basically says, like, reporters have to, like, go out and learn all this stuff and not forget what it was like not to know all that stuff. And so, like, you, like, so much of the end of the process is being like, okay, now I've come to have this particular kind of, like, perspective. What was, like, how did I, what did I think about this before I knew any of this? And how do I, like, communicate all this to a reader? How do I look at this story as a way? to bring the reader along on like the experience that I had coming to learn all this stuff. You know, how can I like start with a reader thinking like neither of us knows anything about this thing. I like was in a lucky position where I got to go like learn about this thing for six months and now I'm going to like take you through everything that I learned over those six months. Is there um, any kind of project you can talk about or, or, or a time people uh, can, can, can look for you next or where should we send them? How should they keep track of your work? Who knows? There are some like longer term things going on that I probably shouldn't talk about yet. But yeah, I'm, I'm trying to take like at least a week of a break right now. <laughs> Fair enough. You, you've earned it. Uh, well, there's a good chance as long as there's Sunday Longer subscribers, they'll see whatever does come next when it does. If you are looking for links to the stories that, that Gideon has wrote or that we've mentioned, you can find them in our show notes or on our website, sundaylongread.com. Uh, Gideon, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, thank you so much, Jacob. This has been great. Awesome. Best of luck and talk to you soon. Thanks. And thank you all for listening to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. We'll be back soon with another great guest. Until then, have a great week.